Welcome back to Conservation Conversations with me, your host, Sean O'Brien. With all of 2022 wrapped up, we're bringing you a special episode of Conservation Conversations today, a compilation of some of the most thought-provoking moments from our episodes of this past year. Keep listening to hear from scientists, conservation professionals, and other leaders involved in protecting biodiversity. We'll hear about some of their inspirations and about some of the important work that they do, and also some funny stories from their careers. We'll also take a dive into a larger but equally important ideas, such as the necessity of inclusion and diversity in conservation, and why conservation matters to listeners like you. Of course, a big thank you to all of the guests who have joined us in this past year for sharing their amazing work and experiences. Also, thank you to you, our listeners. We hope that this episode inspires you in the same way that these individuals have inspired us. As you have heard on this show today, more than ever, it is evident that species and ecosystems are significantly affected by anthropogenic activity. Anthropogenic, of course, meaning humankind. And by significantly affected, I mean species are going extinct and ecosystems are being destroyed at a pace never seen before in human history. Why does this matter? What can we do about it? I was lucky to talk with Razan Al-Mubarak, president of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, or IUCN, one of the most important conservation organizations on the planet. I think like all of us, I think we've gotten to a point where we are noticing everywhere, um, in every part of the planet, that nature destruction is happening at an unprecedented rate. So there's the, this, this stark reality that just wants to make you kind of scream and want to do, do things, um, but mainly yeah. to act. I think we've gotten to a point where it's no longer just acceptable or only acceptable to do the things that we as conservation have traditionally done, which is describe a, a situation or collect data or assess. And I think we need to now combine this knowledge, this great knowledge that we've collected over you know, the, 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 the movement, the nature conservation movement, and really to act. So, you know, to have a truly successful movement like the environmental movement, you need all hands on deck um, and you need different disciplines. I mean, the, the environment is, is complex. Um, it's, it's the air that we breathe, it's food, it's species, it's how it relates to nature and culture. It's how we build cities and integrate cities. And, 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 you know, and, and as such, what I'm trying to allude to is it's, it's complex and therefore requires a multidisciplinary approach. One thing that Roseanne said that stuck with me was that we need all hands on deck. This idea continued to come up in other conversations here on the podcast, including in my talk with Justin Cummings, founding director of the Doris Duke Conservation Scholars Program at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Justin is also a rare thing, a scientist deeply engaged in politics. He is the former mayor of the city of Santa Cruz and currently a county supervisor in Santa Cruz. And I feel like the one nice thing about ecology is that um, although there is some competition, depending on like the institution that you're at and some of the groups you might be involved with, I feel over overwhelmingly most people um, in this field are really supportive of one another because 
we all have the same goal of we're trying to protect the planet for everyone. And so the more that we can find people who are willing to, to do that and join us in that fight, I feel like the more supportive we are of one another. Roseanne also spoke about how critical it is that the voices of people who have been traditionally silenced and those who have not been included in decision-making are at the table when developing solutions to today's conservation issues. Unfortunately, for a very long time, the environmental movement has perhaps been a bit too exclusive, focusing either sometimes on the specialists, but also excluding women, excluding youth, excluding the indigenous uh, peoples who are today recognized, all these three groups are recognized as really the key to addressing um, uh, conservation issues um, in, in, in the today and in the future. Um, and then I bring the, you know, the example from home. A lot of people, you know, ask me this question you know, as a woman from the Middle East, from a country like the Emirates, how did you progress? Uh, how did you develop a, this, this, this career? And it goes back to kind of policy, sort of the founding fathers, you know, and mothers of, of our nation, um, you know, work tirelessly and consistently for gender equity. So it doesn't happen, I think, by default. It needs to happen by design. So again, I'll give you examples from, from the UAE. So in the UAE, because of, of this policy that has been advocated since the establishment of the country, today, for example, um, women uh, account for more than half of UAE graduates in, in STEM, so science, technology, um, and uh, engineering and math. It's a, they account for half of the members of our sort of federal national council, which is similar to, I suppose, uh, the, a, a parliament. Mm -hmm. um, they compromise half, they comprise of half of our cabinet. And according to the World Economic Forum, UAE ranks second in, in wage equity uh, between genders. So, so what I'm trying to say again, and I'll repeat, it's by design a design and yeah. we need to you know we need to be authentic about it we need to be consistent and we need to just get it done right often those who are most impacted by decisions are left out of the conversations and it is key that their expertise and stories are valued you'll now hear a clip from our episode with james evans founder and ceo of companions and animals for reform and equity in which we discuss the importance of black indigenous and people of color or bipoc perspectives and representation in conservation. Right, that is often the perspective of white dominant culture is that from our white dominant space, we already know the answers. So a lot of um, NGOs, non-for-profits, they enter into spaces to solve problems, but they don't do any deep listening um, with the groups for which they're trying to solve problems, right? So for instance, um, you have groups that will come in to an indigenous community like the one I'm in right now um, and attempt to shame them or blame them for the large amount of free roaming dogs and cats. Mm -hmm. But that community has a, um, a deep interest and seeing those animals free, right? They don't they don't see dogs and cats roaming um, any differently than deer roaming or fox roaming or hawks roaming, right? We were joking the other day. I said, you know, people feed 
um, outdoor birds all the time. And if that bird crashes into a window, no one says, oh, you're an irresponsible bird owner, right? How did you how did you allow your bird to run into a window? Um, but that's what happens here. The 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 more dominant white side of animal welfare is also all, often shaming indigenous communities for allowing their animals to roam free. Um, but and and then in doing so, they project this um, misconception on the community that they don't actually care about the animals. But indigenous people are are spiritually tied to animals in ways that white communities don't identify with. So they're intrinsically everything about what they do connects them to animals. And just because they don't want to see them fenced um, doesn't mean they don't care. They care in a different way than we care. And so when you come into a community like this and you attempt to solve problems by doing things that encourage tethering or fencing without talking to folks, then you're 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 trying to solve your problem. You're not trying to solve the community's problem. And so um, white dominant culture um, often doesn't listen to, to to community. And so one of the things that care does is regardless of what community that we're in, whether it's indigenous or it's it's Philadelphia or it's Atlanta, we start first with asking people um, mm. how they want to solve their own problems. And we also finance and mentor those groups to start their own non-for-profits to solve their problems themselves. One of the beautiful things about technology is the way that it puts power back into the hands of individuals, allowing them to learn, create, and connect like never before. In my conversation with Scott Laurie, co-director of iNaturalist, he recalled how a fateful discovery by a group of school children led to a pretty surprising connection across the continents. I mean, just uh, just one example. I, I, this is for a couple of years ago, but I thought it was a neat one. Is there's a um, there's a group of school kids out on a beach in Santa Barbara, and this. Do you know what an ocean sunfish is? This big, oh yeah, yeah. mola molas. They look like they're flat, you know, huge fish with one eye on one side and another. Yeah, they're around. gigantic gigantic yeah and one of these was washed up on a beach and this group of school kids side and you know poked at it and took pictures of a post of the tide naturalist and there is the, the ocean sunfish that occurs here but they connected pretty quickly on a naturalist with this whole group of ichthyologists out of australia who and one was the person who just who described um this australian species of sunfish which had never been seen in the northern hemisphere but what i loved about it and i think this is the best of that world i was talking about it was like we think it's this, but we need you to go back and open its mouth and look for that one tooth there, the spine on the fin. And there was sort of this back and forth. And to have on one end of that conversation is a bunch of school kids like, wow, you know, this is really, this is really exciting. On the other hand, like you're saying, people in Australia who would never be able to check this out, working together to, to make those discoveries is just, for me, that's what it's all about. Imagine now, if instead of a group of school children and a few scientists going back and forth about a single sunfish, Hundreds of scientists from across the globe could work together to assess an entire class of species. Well, that actually happened. Last year, a comprehensive study of the world's reptiles was published in the journal Nature, in which more than 900 experts representing 24 countries across six continents collaborated to assess how imperiled reptiles are as a group. I spoke with the lead authors of the report, 
Bruce Young, who was also the chief zoologist and senior conservation scientist here at NatureServe, and Neil Cox, the manager of the Biodiversity Assessment Unit, a joint effort of the IUCN and Conservation International. Most recently, you've uh, gathered together hundreds of scientists from across the globe to check on the conservation status of reptiles. Now, so why reptiles? Why now? Why should we care? I mean, reptiles are a, a, a fundamental part of, of most, um, of most uh, tropical ecosystems and a lot of temperate ones as well. They're not just, um, you know, they, they, we, we kind of overlook them at times, but they're, they're very important predators of some species. Uh, they prevent, uh, for instance, uh, things getting out of balance with uh, pest species there. But also they are prey to a lot of species as well. So, um, and uh, uh, there are reptiles that feed on reptiles, of course. <laughs> we can't overlook that. But um, if we start removing bits of biodiversity, if we remove the reptiles, even if you're not particularly keen on them, it does have knock-on effects through the, the whole ecosystem and might eventually and likely impacts some of the species that you're, you're probably more interested in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the big, I mean, if you had to boil the whole study down to one number, it's 21%. Uh, 21% of reptiles are threatened with extinction. Um, one of the cool things we did was looked at how much evolutionary history could potentially be lost if the threatened species all became extinct. And, base, and there's another number is uh, 15 billion years of evolutionary history is, is represented in these species. So this is 15 billion years of evolution that with new genes and things that don't occur anywhere else. 15 billion years of evolutionary history. That's just amazing to think about. There are so many groups of species that are overlooked when we think about conservation. Pollinators, freshwater invertebrates, reptiles. But even if they are often invisible to us, they play an absolutely vital role to our ecosystems and in turn to humans. In our episode with Dr. Greg Mueller, chief scientist and Nagani vice president of science at the Chicago Botanic Garden, I learned about one of our planet's most important group of decomposers and one of our most overlooked creatures, fungi or fungi, depends on your perspective. So one thing that uh, I know is really important, and I think you can tell us about it a little bit, is the role that fungi play in sort of life on Earth. And like, why are they important when like they're so small, except for the one you can see from an airplane, yeah. which is, you know, a relatively, yeah. that's also something I want to talk about is like the new things that we're learning yeah. in really just the past you know, couple of decades about fungus. Right. So the mushroom basically just gets the spores up in the air, the reproductive propagules and all allows the glory. It, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's all the glory, but do very little bit of the work. Right. So everything's going on out of sight for the most part. And so depending on the species that mycelium might be decomposing dead organic material. So they're basically nature's recyclers. So the most common carbon compounds on the planet are, are um, cellulose and lignin, the components of plants, and fungi are the most effective initial decomposers of lignin. So one of the big functions are as a decomposer, and in nature, that's super important, right? Uh, think of what would be if we had, you know, 
a million years of tall trees uh, that have never decomposed be a problem. For humans, sometimes that decomposition is a problem when it's, you know, breaking, you know, when it's a um, dry rot destroying your home or food spoilage or things like that. But the fungus doesn't know the difference, right? It, it's dead organic material. And so ecologically, it's super important. So next time you see a mushroom, remember that you're only seeing a small piece of the puzzle. The larger part of the story happens beneath the soil. And speaking of larger, did you know that one of the largest living organisms on our planet is a fungus? So let's talk about um, some of the world's largest organisms. Yeah. So this is the humongous fungus. And you're old enough. Not everybody on this call will be. Um, this was in the mid-90s, I guess, early 91, 92, 93, something like that. I got a phone call from somebody and said, huh, they just discovered this great humongous fungus. And they wanted to go up in, it was, the first one was discovered basically in the Wisconsin-Michigan border. So not that far from Chicago. They were going to organize a bus trip up there to see this thing. I said, hold on. This is all below ground. If you go up there, you're going to see this mushroom over here and this mushroom over here and this mushroom over here. You don't know that they're all connected. So what this is, is a mushroom that actually forms, um, it's a pathogen on, on trees. And so it'll grow on this tree and then it sends out this specialized runner that's called a rhizomorph that'll go to the next tree and go to the next tree and the next tree. And the way it was discovered is that some colleagues of mine were trying to see us, hey, do mushrooms from adjacent trees, are they closest relatives? You know, trying to get the idea of how mm. dispersal works. And so they took the DNA from these mushrooms and these mushrooms and these mushrooms, and it covered, in that case, I think it was 1,500 acres. And they found out they were all genetically identical. It was one big clone. That's, that's um, amazing. So, and then, so they said, oh, we got the humongous fungus. And then some people in Washington state said, oh, I've got a bigger fungus than you. And then my fungus is bigger than you. And I forgot what the biggest one is. It's 32 hectares or something like that. I mean, it's a big, it's a big clone. Um, and so the Michigan one that was covering 1500 acres, they could take, they could grow that in culture and saw how long, how fast it grew. Mm -hmm. Extrapolated the growth rate in the lab to the area that it was there. It was a minimum of a thousand years or older to be able to cover that 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 area. Just of the mind. This conversation with Greg was a wonderful example of just how amazing nature is. It's important that we find beauty and even humor in things like the humongous fungus. And consequently, realize that not only are such marvels worth protecting, but all species are. Luckily, there are places that all of us can go that not only promote conservation, but inspire millions of people to care about nature. I spoke with Murphy Westwood, Vice President of Science and Conservation at the Morton Arboretum, about how these spaces connect people to nature and science. And at the Royal Botanic Garden at Kew, I did some work there, which is probably one of the best known, you know, gardens in the world. Mm -hmm. So I've I've always been in this sort of public garden space and really um, loved the aspect of the visitors and the people that you can impact. So, you know, at, at universities and academia, you have this kind of pursuit of knowledge. We have those same level caliber molecular labs and research facilities in public gardens. 
And we also engage over 500 million visitors a year across the world's roughly 3,000 botanic gardens. So think wow. about the impact that can have on connecting plants to people through your visitors. So it's that's sort of been like where I found my sweet spot to be was the kind of fundamental pursuit of knowledge and the you know, focus on on plants and plant evolution and conserving that biodiversity, but also that kind of outreach and education and engagement component. Do you have a specific tree species that you would consider to be your favorite? Oh, that's such a hard question. Forgetting <laughs> that question all the time, you'd think I'd have like a regular answer, but it does change. So I will say I'm fickle in that way that I sort of, I fluctuate about um, sometimes it's a, it's a different species in the fall than it is in the spring. Sure. Right now I'm really loving just our, our standard old state tree of Illinois. I'm outside of Chicago is the white Oak. And it just is a really lovely summer tree. The shape of the leaf and the color of green that it is right now is just, it sort of is like if you were to picture a leaf or picture a tree, that is the tree that would be like, you know, your cartoon tree is yeah. I think, the white oak. And I'm just really enjoying them right now. So I think today my favorite tree is a white oak, but who knows what tomorrow may hold. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit unfair. It's like asking what, well, you know, which is your favorite child, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> I have, and I have 58,500 favorite children. Exactly. So. exactly. Wait, what? 500 million? That's a lot of visitors every year visiting public gardens. Think of all the people learning about plants and becoming inspired to protect them. It's a great service they're providing. Conservation starts with each of us. And even if there isn't an arboretum nearby to showcase some of the extraordinary species, it never hurts to start by learning about and appreciating the native species right in your own backyard and the problems that face those species. This reminds me of something that Margaret O'Gorman president of the Wildlife Habitat Council and I discussed when she came on the show and said that every act of conservation matters. We use that to talk about conservation by corporations. And Margaret and I discussed the difference between greenwashing, a form of performative activism and doing the right thing. So when we were talking before, you talked about um, I don't remember how you said it. You said it way better than I will. Uh, but it was basically sort of meeting people where they are and doing conservation where you can. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about that philosophy? Because, of course, I want to um, get to the, the dirty word in the room, which is ironic, dirty word, because it's got the word green in it. Right. <laughs> um, so talk to me a little bit about your philosophy and then we'll talk about that other sure. word. That other word, the G word. Exactly. Um, so at WHC, we adopted a mantra oh, about seven or eight years ago that every act of conservation matters. And That's we adopted. The expression I love. Yes. That, yes. <laughs> and we adopted that because when you work with the corporate sector, you're, yes, working in some cases on very large impacted lands, like mine sites, like quarries, uh, super fun sites, et cetera. But you're also working with people who want to make a difference on smaller locations, whether it's a ready mix facility, whether it's a corporate campus. 
Now, those locations are not traditionally seen as hugely contributive to increasing biodiversity, but they're very important in terms of engagement and in terms of education. And also when we talk about, you know, mosaics and stepping stone ecosystems, they can also be quite important in our fragmented landscape. So we did not want to um, we did not want to take anybody out of that conversation. Right, because we're facing such an enormous crisis that we need every little thing to come together. Um, so I like that. I like that philosophy, but it does cause some people to think, oh, well, they're just greenwashing these big evil corporations that are out there. Um, you know, greenwashing is a really interesting term. When I was writing my book, I did some research in greenwashing because I wanted to make sure we ad I addressed it in the book. And there were very few scholarly articles and even less and even fewer um, news articles about greenwashing. If you Google greenwashing today, it's just all over the place. It's a term that's being used um, in response to increased corporate engagement in environmental issues, which is kind of a good thing because it means that companies are more involved in environmental issues, but it's also a bad thing because it's being thrown about lazily, very lazily, in my opinion. There are definitely... There is definitely a call for greenwashing accusations to be made in certain circumstances and in quite many circumstances. But to kind of address it against every corporate action that's, that, that is pro-environment, to me, diminishes the impact of that corporate action and also um, weakens our case when we're asking business to take action. But overall, as a company, be honest about what your impact is. And when you're honest about what your impact is, we will accept your um, stories and your metrics around the biodiversity uplift that you're doing. But when you're not being honest um, and pretending that planting a million trees is mitigating your impact on the environment, that's greenwashing. Or when you pretend, for example, with our certification, if you use our certifications to say that you're a green company, that's greenwashing. All we're certifying with our standard is the work that you're doing at that particular place. We're not saying that you're a green company. So how you tell your stories and how you're leveraging those stories, to me, is the difference between greenwashing and doing the right thing. In my conversation with Margaret, I mentioned the enormous crisis that we're facing with biodiversity and the environment as a whole. Throughout this episode, we've heard about how scientists, corporations, and citizens are coming together to tackle this crisis from every angle. But how do we know if we're making a difference? At the 2022 COP15, okay, get ready for it. That is shorthand for the 15th meeting of the Conference of Parties to the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity. Yeah, the shorter name's easier, but the significance of this event cannot be overstated. Almost every country on earth came together to agree to conserve 30% of the planet by 2030. This isn't the first time that nations have set lofty conservation goals, but what makes this time different is how the goals were formed with targets that are measurable and allow for accountability. I spoke with Mike Gill, NatureServe's Biodiversity Indicators Program Director, about the agreement made at COP15 and how we as a global community can achieve the goals set by it. In particular, you mentioned evidence-based or science-based decision-making, and that's one of the things that's so exciting about what we have available to us in North America is we have this amazing spatially explicit database on biodiversity, both uh, species as well as habitats. And both of those are important in this conference parties agreement. Is that right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So this is this is the core. These are the core ingredients in the recipe by which we're going to achieve those targets. Um, and we need to understand sort of distance to target. We need to use data uh, to produce what we call indicators, which are just it's kind of like when you're driving your car and you've got your dashboard and your speedometer. How fast am I going or your GPS is telling you how far away you are and how to get there? That's the same approach that we're taking with the implementation of this agreement is we need to use evidence-based data and indicators to guide progress and measure distance to target. Um, and that's something that that we've learned a lot from, mostly due to our failures. So if you look back to the last decadal agreement for nature, what, which created what they called the Yachi biodiversity targets, we, we, we didn't reach any of them. All 20 we failed to fully reach and many we went backwards. And NatureServe actually asked why. Why is that? Like, what are the reasons? Um, a simple question, but a complicated answer. And um, and we've used those answers to actually really help formulate this new agreement to learn from our mistakes and, and chart a better path going forward. We now have a path before us. We have the data, the indicators to keep us on course, and the targets we need to meet. It will be interesting, more than that, crucial to our survival to see what we're able to accomplish as a planet over the next seven years. And we're better suited than ever before to make it happen. We'll end this episode with a moment from my discussion with Scott Laurie, where we talked briefly about how we best use the power of science to guide our decisions in conserving biodiversity. I think so much of what we're trying to do to provide context on species and help people understand that when they're looking at something, it's not just a pretty picture, but it's actually, this is a species that, you know, is really sharing the, we're sharing the planet with in many ways, even though our lives are enriched by species too, these species depend on people caring about them and, and the work that nature served us to really help bring all these diverse species on people's radar screens in terms of the conservation landscape and the policy landscape is just really, really important. And I hope that we can build those bridges more. Thank you so much for tuning into this special Best of 2022 episode. We hope that these moments have inspired you and demonstrated the value of conserving the fascinating biodiversity that surrounds us. As always, we're extraordinarily thankful for all of our listeners and your feedback is always valued. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics or guests that you think would be great on future episodes, shoot us an email at info at if you'd like to support our mission of using data and science to protect biodiversity, we'd greatly appreciate it if you'd check out our website at natureserve.org and consider following us on social media, get involved by making a donation, or even adopting a species. Finally, as every podcast out there reminds you, ratings actually make a difference. Please give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. I look forward to talking with you in the next episode of Conservation Conversations. Stay tuned. <laughs>